0: The, uh, the series we're in, I want to just segue kind of to where we left off last week. The series we're in is just called The Pursuit of God. And last week we talked about hearing God and this whole idea of prayer. And we kind of ran out of time a little bit. And so I said I would carry some of that over. And what we wanted to do this week is just talk about the idea of pursuing God, which is an active thing. Uh, it's a volitional thing. And, um, and just pursuing God. What does it mean to accept responsibility as disciples, to follow Christ, and to, and to run hard after God? And we'll just start with where we, where we left off last week. And the first one here is just, so if you want to take notes, we'll just keep doing it outline format, which, um, which is kind of fun. I don't normally do outline format, right? But uh, it's all good. So number one is just this. It's simply um, create the conditions for hearing God. Coming off of last week and then just going into this week. The first thing I want to talk about is just creating the conditions for hearing God. When we talk about prayer, we, we talk actively about going and talking to God. And I think that that leads us into a lot of problems. It's certainly true and it's certainly an aspect of prayer. But I think the biggest problem Americans have with prayer is that we think it means us talking to God. I think our biggest problem with prayer is that we always think about prayer in terms of talking to God, not listening to God. And so when we think about prayer, we, we, we realize it's active, but the part we take is it's about actively talking to God. And what I want to kind of point here is create the conditions for hearing God means think about prayer as an active thing, but as an active thing about creating the conditions to hear God. In other words, be active about receiving or listening rather than active about speaking. And when we think about prayer that way, we think about, First and foremost, solitude. Jesus would go and he would pray on on the hillsides all night. And and it was a, a, a fascinating way for him to go and to talk to God that was very different in some sense than what his disciples had seen or experienced. And so when they talk to him about praying like he does, they're really saying, what is this relationship, this very intimate relationship that you have with God that we would like to learn more about? And what they're talking about here, I think, is is this intimacy, this ability to listen and to understand and to discern. And if we're going to have that kind of a relationship with our Father, then we have to learn to set apart apart the time um, to find Him there. It means solitude. I, I, for many years, thought that we should just get rid of the the word prayer from our vocabulary and replace it with solitude. Because at least it would begin to work out the process that I think that needs to happen to see it from a different paradigm, which is creating the space to actually hear God. Solitude is, is kind of being removed from noise or distractions or the cares, uh, the cares of this world to still yourself enough so that you can actually um, listen to or hear God. And we talked about a number of weeks ago about quality time. And that quality time is really born out of quantity time. That if you really plan for quality time, you find that a lot of times you're not going to succeed at it. I mean, when I really schedule that 16 minutes to go have quality time with my daughters, I usually fail. Right? Um, I, I have to create more time. And I don't really know when the quality is going to happen or when that question's going to come out. Um, with my girls, it's really interesting. I, I, I really want them to ask me questions. And I take them out on, on special kind of daddy-daughter dates for their birthday every year. And we do half-birthdays because one birthday a year is just not enough. So we celebrate half-birthdays. Um, I've never heard of that before, so I've, I've thought about trademarking it um, because it's kind of cool. But we do half-birthdays and then full-birthdays, and, and I take the girls out. And, and I... We'll come home from work. I'll be busy. Like tonight's the night you're supposed to take me out. I'm like, all right, that's right. It's Red Robin, and then Claire's for costume jewelry, (laughs) which is like, I don't know, junk times two. Um, But that's that's the routine. So uh, I'm all excited. I'm like, okay, let's 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 do this. And I'm like, and, and all I want is for a meaningful question to come out at dinner, you know, at Red Robin. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, "So, how are things going?" So, it, and then I begin to get frustrated. It's like they're just not getting deep with me. <laughs> you know, they're all they care about is the ice cream, and if I remember to tell the people that it's their birthday, and 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 then it's funny. It's like you know, this is not where qu- uh, quality time is going to happen. If I haven't created enough enough time, or enough space, or enough space that week, so that. They actually feel like they can be vulnerable enough to share with me what they really want to share with me. And the same is true in our relationship with God. If we really say, you know, over this next four minutes, uh, I'm going to really have meaningful time with God. I'm going to really pray some prayers that are going to cause famines to be broken, you know, like Elijah. I'm going to pray healing for somebody. I mean, their cancer is going to go away because in the next two minutes, boy, oh, boy. Um, I'm going to burn it up. Like it's, you know what I'm saying? Like it's just, I'm going to really know what the next step in my life is because uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for a 10-minute walk right now and really demand that God has to tell me by the end of this 10 minutes what's what, even though I haven't really listened for the last two months or three months. And so we have to create the conditions for hearing God, which really means solitude. Spending time with God. I mean, one of the most fascinating things you ever see with Jesus is he heals a whole bunch of people. I mean, he goes and he's healing a whole bunch of people, and then his disciples get up and they don't even know where he's gone. That's how secretive he is about it. And they're looking for him everywhere. It's like, we lost Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? We lost Jesus. But there's all these people lining up because word's gotten out that he's healing people. And so there's all these people lining up and they want to be healed. And the disciples are like, this is good for business. And so they're really excited, but they've lost Jesus. So they're looking. They finally find him on top of a hillside. And they're like, hey, Jesus, this is great and all. Um, You've got to go heal some people. And he's like, no, um, it's time to leave. What do you mean it's time to leave? Yeah, it's time to go. But there's a line of people that you're supposed to heal. He's like, I'm sorry, but it's time to go. And just think of what the disciples must have been thinking. Like, how unfair. Like, you know, you mean... Like, those people last night got healed, but the people this morning don't get healed. That's so just not fair. Like, we can't do that. That's bad for business. And Jesus is like, listen, it's time to go. And, and there's something so fascinating about that passage for me, about drawing boundaries, about it's not a, what we think ministry is about or about loving people or even fairness. It's about being sensitive enough to God's leading that we know where we're supposed to go, the right time and the right place. And there's something that we got to take away from that in terms of creating space and the conditions for hearing God. So solitude. Um, and if you'll turn to 1 Kings, here's the second part of creating the conditions for hearing God. 1 Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19 is Elijah. It's, it's this famous passage on Elijah. And what I want to draw a distinction between is what I'm trying to talk about with prayer as a conversational relationship with God rather than just us talking or presenting lists to God. Martin Luther said this, he said, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. There's an aspect of prayer that we have to learn to, to talk about and think about where it's about divine guidance. It's about God speaking to us and leading us and guiding our steps. It's not just this rote routine thing where we sit down and then rattle off our our kind of routine prayer or um, our pre-programmed grooves for prayer. Do you know what I mean by that? I don't know about you, but if you were to ask me to pray right now, 70% of my words would be pre-programmed. The words I've said before it's the way i enter into prayer it's the way i exit prayer it's the cool little thing i say that i know is very theologically correct that always gets a good response and and, I, and it's my move whether I, I think about it or not whether i want it to be or not i just go there and and i have my grooves with prayer that's not prayer it might, it might be a part of prayer it might be in the in the realm of prayer but what i'm talking about is what what martin luther's talking about is what paul was talking about is It's pray without ceasing. It's divine guidance. It's being in communion with God. It's understanding and listening and hearing and being sensitive to God. And it's not just these kinds of formulaic things that we have. And I think that this is expressed so well in 1 Kings here in chapter 19. And we see um, Elijah getting out to the desert to go hear God. And he's exasperated because if you remember the story, he's kind of been in this face-off with the prophet's of Baal, and he's shown himself to be the true prophet of the one true God. But it's, I mean, all hell's breaking loose, politically and militarily, and he's running for his life, and, and the famine that's been going on, the drought is about to, to break. He's prayed for rain, and it's coming, and everything's going on, and his life is at stake, and he runs out to the desert, and then this is what we get um, in verse 9. So chapter 19, verse 9 of First Kings the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by you. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. I want to just stop here for a minute and backtrack. When Elijah flees... Um, the first thing the angel says to him, so verse seven, uh, is to get up and and to eat and to drink, and to be strengthened. Um, and God is really attentive to putting him to sleep. It's like Elijah has just gone through the most ridiculous thing. In the chap- first beginning of chapter nineteen, um, there's this whole idea of you have to eat, you have to rest, you have to restore yourself, you have to sleep. In, in some sense, before we even have this conversation. And then we get to this part where I just read, and God's like, um, okay, you, you, it sounds like you really wound up here, Elijah. You're, I mean, you're just, your heart is revving so fast. You, you think it's all about you, that you're the only one left, that the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Okay, you know what? Go stand out. Um, at the edge here, and, and I'm going to pass by you. And, and you see this thing of God setting him up for a lesson. And what is this lesson? So let's continue back with verse 14. The voice in this, this gentle whisper, the presence of the Lord coming by, says, what are you doing here, Elijah? I thought they were already talking. But now we're really getting to, to a, a face-to-face conversation with Elijah and God. And the presence of God says, what are you doing here? he says, I've been zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Um, Elijah's not the only one, or we're not the only ones that develop our, our routine stories. Do you notice that? Um, you, you know what I mean by that? When, when it, um, just think of who it is that's your enemy right now. Just think of the self-pity you feel about whatever's going on in life right now. Just think of your greatest frustration right now. You have a tape that you play about that issue that every time you think about it, you just hit play. I mean, it's already pre-programmed. You know why you're frustrated at that person. You know why it's not fair that your job or that life is doing it to to you this way or that your health is this way or that somebody has something that you don't. You you have it already pre-programmed. And it's funny how you see these things come out in Scripture. But God finally shows up in front of Elijah. And Elijah just says, "Um, you want to know? And he hits play on the tape. He's going to say the same thing that he's been feeling um, over and over and over. He's going to say it again the exact same way with the exact same words. He's just going to play the tape. And he's like, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. They've killed everyone else. they put him to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. And then the Lord says to him, Go back the way you came and then go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu and do these things. So he's saying, okay, listen, here's what you're going to do. You go and you take care of this business. And here's what I'm going to tell you, verse 18. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him." So Elijah plays his tape. He's all wound up, and God says, listen, um, here's what you're going to go do. You're going to go find some help, and oh, by the way, you're not the only one. Not everybody's been put to death, and I've reserved 7,000 people that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, not just you. Um, So what am I getting from all this is simply this, this lesson. When we pray the Psalms, when we pray the Psalms, It's prayers that start from our human experience that we can project to God with the fullness of our emotion. Does that make sense? And God can handle it. And God does handle it. And that's the beauty of the Psalms being in the middle of Scripture that we can have these exasperated prayers that are prayed in Scripture and we can pray along with them. But when we want to hear God speak to us, Something has to change in which we still ourselves and situate ourselves to be centered on him, not our human emotion. Let me, let me backtrack and tell the story again. So God says to Elijah, who's all worked up and his heart's beating, stop, rest, eat, sleep. Okay? Then he says to him, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to send you out to the mouth of the cave. I'm going to send you out so that the presence of the Lord can come by and there's this earthquake, and then there's this fire, and then there's this great storm. What's the purpose of all these things? All of these things are what Elijah would have expected to contain the voice of the Lord. Why? Because Elijah's emotion is so amped up that if God is mapping onto Elijah's emotions, he's gonna have an earthquake, a fire, a thunderstorm. The heavens are going to be rent because Elijah is defining the emotional intensity of what's going on. And if God is going to meet him where Elijah's at, it's going to be in the storm. But it's not in the storm. And it continues on and it continues on. And then there's a gentle whisper. And God says what in the gentle whisper? Uh, I hear what you're saying, Elijah. But I want you to go do this. And oh, by the way, you're wrong. You're wrong. And what you think is the story here is not really the story. And what you think is the reality here is not really the reality. And what I'm trying to say to you is, don't ask how I'm going to fit myself into your story, Elijah. Still yourself and hear how I'm using you in my story. And in my story, um, everything's under control. In my story, it, it's not 100 beats a minute. Um, on my story, you can rest and you can listen. And I think there's something that we should see here that we don't normally talk about with regard to prayer. That one of the things we, we, we have to do if we're going to hear God speak to us is that we still ourselves... And understand that really listening to God and hearing God is about finding out how we are being used or are going to be situated or are going to be um, contextualized within his story as a sovereign God. That it's not always about God explaining to us kind of the way Job wanted, how he fits into our experience and our story, our drama and our emotion. So the first thing here is creating the conditions for hearing God. We have to understand solitude. And I think, like this story expresses in Elijah, we have to understand how to situate ourselves so that we're hearing God and that we're not just projecting toward God. The second thing about pursuing God is that we need to learn to train our desires. Turn to the book of Psalms. uh, The book of Psalm with me, if you would. Psalm 73. Verse 25, and you can circle this if you want, come back to it, but I think it expresses in such a powerful way what we have to understand about our desires. Psalm 73, verse 25, it says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Whom have I in heaven but you and earth has nothing I desire besides you mark 419 if you 'll move there real fast it 's a parable of soils, and we come back to the same word of desires that we don 't normally tend to talk about. we talk around mark 419 it simply says this um, uh, Jesus is talking about the parable of the soils, and he's talking about how this good seed falls, his message falls, the word falls, but then it doesn't always grow up. And in verse 18, going into verse 9, it says, still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So you just think of a a plant or a weed or something that grows really fast and you just picture it growing and you're really excited, but then it gets choked out because of other things around it. And so the desire for other things. In other words, in Psalm we're talking about, I have no desire but you, God. Heaven has nothing else but you, and and this world holds nothing greater than you. I have no other desire. I worship, in some sense, no other thing. Nothing is higher. Nothing is more important, which is really the beginning of the Ten Commandments, that I, I have no other God but you. I worship nothing other than you. My ultimate end or ultimate hunger is for nothing but you. Everything else is located somehow within the context of that. And we see that, our desires are really important things. Now, our desires are the current upon um, which we're carried in life. Our desires are what kind of drives us, what kind of moves us, what kind of shapes us, what kind of focuses us. And I think there's a big problem with Christianity in the sense that we are, are subtly aware of that, but we don't realize that we can act upon our desires. In some sense, we're commanded to act upon our desires. In the book of Genesis, it says, Behold, sin is crouching at your your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. That there's a, a battle going on with desires, but that you're supposed to look at that, understand it, um, lean into it, care enough about it, that you're fighting the battle on the level of desires in general, not just being carried downstream by your desires. In fact, the whole idea of commands in scripture or obedience that isn't just an Old Testament thing because Jesus himself commands us over and over again to be obedient, even to obedient to to the law of love and to service and everything else. But this idea of obedience is simply saying, listen, you have to choose things that go this way which are in alignment with where God is, who should be your chief desire, and not choose things that are this way, which are against God, against what God would have for you, and they're kind of going in in the way of this world. You need to lean into that, care enough about it, so that you're choosing the right things, obeying the right things. So obedience begs the question that we can speak to our desires, that we can frame that, look at it, understand it, wrestle with it, and try to shape that conversation. And I think sometimes we're very defeatist in the Christian faith. That we, we feel ourselves carried along. We know that it's just hard. We know that we want things and we're like, man, it's just hard. Man, I'm just not a great Christian. Man, at least I do these things well. And who really cares about those other things? Like... Purity, or like service, or like whatever. But we never really get this idea that this, this, the conversation at the core on our desires is one that we own. We're commanded into. It's not, we're, we're not, we're not weak within it and being carried along. I, let me just use this segue um, to get us out. of. The abstract. John Piper wrote a book that everyone should read on fasting, called um, "A Hunger for God." And fasting does a lot of things. Uh, Interns were asking me this week about fasting. Fasting teaches you a lot of things. One thing it teaches you is your dependence—that that that you're not—you're a contingent being. You take away food and water, and about two weeks, you realize how close you are to dying. Like another another month, and I'm I'm. I'm gone. Another week or two and I could be in the hospital. And you realize how fleeting and contingent your life is. I think that's one of the ways that we shape ourselves for understanding cancer or, or health issues. That when we fast and begin to realize just how contingent we are, that when we're confronted with deep health issues, we're like, I, I already get this conversation. I'm not sufficient in and of myself. I can't Hang on to my life just because I choose to or want to or whatever it might be. I'm, I'm a contingent being. I'm dependent. So fasting teaches us the nature of that. It also teaches us a sensitivity to spiritual things and to where God's at. You begin to uh, be aware of what's going on around you in a whole different level. I'm talking when you've, you're fasting for three days, four days, five days. And you begin to realize that everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual and everything becomes a conversation with God and fasting teaches you that. I think fasting also prepares you for ministry. We see it with Moses and Jesus and others that a big, long, prolonged fast is one of these things where you're saying, I'm removing myself and I'm orienting myself to a calling or to a ministry as opposed to the life that came before. And there's this role that it can play in really um, marking you off for the next path that you're going to be on. But fasting also teaches us about the nature of desires. This is where John Piper's book comes in. Um, Piper has this great way of talking about fasting. He says, when you're fasting and you get around food and you smell that food and your appetites kick up, your natural appetites, uh, your hunger... For whatever it might be, your desire for whatever it might be that is intense and it's strong. When you see that, it's not just about killing the desire for that food. Like, ugh, I'm just going to will myself to not care about eating. I'm just going to like kill desire so that I can just continue to fast because it's all about self-discipline. He says that's not really the goal here. The goal here is to understand the nature of that desire that the intensity of that desire that appetite and to look at it and to in some sense put your nose right in front of the lasagna and to smell it and to go oh my gosh I have such an intense desire for this right now God but more than that God I desire you my desire for you is so much more than this, which seems so intense right now, that I want so badly right now, but, but above that, I desire you. And so I had someone that asked me this week on the question of singleness. And they were like, Ken, how do I frame this conversation? Like, talk me through this whole thing. And I said, your problem is, that you think it's either you give yourself completely over to it and it owns you, or that you have to be some kind of ascetic or completely self-disciplined to where it's set aside and it doesn't own you. And I said, unless God gives you the gift of celibacy, um, that's not where you're going to be. Rather, you have to learn how to deal with it in the middle of it, which, and I gave this whole thing of uh, John Piper and fasting and all, and I said, you have to understand how to take it here, Dream about being married. Anticipation is a beautiful thing. I mean, I love that's with vacation with the kids. It's like that's where I get all the value. They don't fight with each other in the anticipation stage. Um, I, I get all the value of vacation out of anticipation. Dream about your future spouse. If you're if you're a woman, dream about what that day is going to look like. It's a wedding day. Celebrate it. Enjoy it. Do it with god god to to the degree that this is an acceptable thing or can glorify you or isn't going to lead me astray allow me to enjoy um, the fact that that i really am resting in the in in the knowledge that you have plans for me and that they're good And it might not be the way i see it but but you know god if i can if i can dream about this If, if you're moving to a new town do you dream about having friends in the new town do you? I mean, do you think about having friends in the new town? Do you get excited about having friends in the new town? Why would, why would getting married be any different? I'm, there's going to be a season in my life that I'm going to move into, and I'm hoping that someone is going to be there. I'm believing that someone's going to be there. Why would that be any different than getting excited about making friends someday? And so I was trying to help this, this girl understand, like, it's not this bad thing that you have to treat this way, but here's the ultimate reality for it, is at the end of the day, when it's gripping you and you do feel like you can't control it, and you do feel like it's owning you, and you do feel like, um, how do I locate this desire? You have to lean into it and say, God, this is so intense, this is so huge, it dominates my thinking, it owns my heart, but at the end of the day, more than this, God, more than having a companion and not being alone anymore, I desire you. I desire you. And there's some pretty crazy applications to this for those of you that are, that are really struggling with sin in your life. You've got to be able to get to a point where you look at pornography and you just say, God, if I desire this more than I desire you then I'm really bankrupt and really in a bad place and you have to help me you have to speak into that and you have to, 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 to lift me out of this pit that I'm in because that is the height of thinking something else is bigger than it is and thinking that you're smaller than you are but this idea of desires and understanding how they work together is a huge reality proverbs 4:23 above all else guard your heart for everything you do flows from it people you can't delegate your spirituality i can't delegate my spirituality i can't delegate my obedience Uh, and I can't delegate my faith. Those are things that are irreducibly mine. God has grace for me. Um, The beauty of the gospel is that there's always more grace, and that grace is quickening, and it's motivating, and it's rejuvenating, and it always reconciles me to a God who loves me and will be long-suffering with me. But at the end of the day, I have to be willing to follow Christ. I have to be willing to be a disciple. I have to be willing to ask forgiveness. I have to be willing to be on my knees wrestling with my desires and saying, God, don't let me leave the house this morning until my desires are rightly aligned. I have to guard my heart. I have to choose obedience. I get to train my desires. And if I want to pursue God, I have to understand that's a part of the conversation of Christian spirituality. The third thing, so the first thing, create the conditions for hearing God. The second thing, train your desires. The third thing, accept responsibility. And this flows out of the other one. Accept responsibility. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get the crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last for forever. Verse 26, and if if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'd love for you to circle this verse or underline it or box it out, highlight it. So 1 Corinthians 9 and then verse 26, he just says this, Therefore, because we're caring so much about the training we're going into, because it matters, so we're going to train even more than athletes train. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it a slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. If you go to the Met in New York or you go to the British Museum, you go to any museum that has a a large ancient kind of classics collection, you'll see a lot of pottery, Greek pottery, Greek vases, where they'll have the runners. nude Greek runners, you know, like on the side of the vases. They'll have wrestlers wrestling. Um, Paul is writing to a Greek culture in First Corinthians here, and he's speaking to what it is they decorate their lives with. They're all about the glory. They're all about um, this ideal, the Greek ideal in competition and competition and and glory. And they know what it is to train. I mean, the gymnasiums and everything else that went into it, they know what it is to train. And They're a culture aiming at a certain kind of ideal and perfection, and Paul is just borrowing this and saying, listen, you understand what it is to excel. You you lean into that, you accept responsibility for it, you train into it, and I'm saying there's a greater prize and a greater value than that, and it's the crown um, of life. It's this relationship with God. It's this inheritance waiting for you. It's being set apart on this side of the, uh, the ledger, Belonging to him. And he's saying, this is what you should be training for. And because it's so much greater, it's like you've got to have intentionality to what you're doing. And you've got to beat your body into submission. And, and oh, I, I keep, I'm sorry, I, I watched the ESPN 30 for 30 show on Bo Jackson last night. Anyone ever seen that? I grew up um, in the Bo Jackson era had every Bo Jackson card. You, know, you guys know Bo Jackson? <laughs> Do you know Bo Jackson? But it was the whole Bo Knows campaign, Made Nike. They, they weren't, Reeboks had more revenue before the Bo Jackson campaign because um, he played two sports. So it was like Bo knows Everything. It's like Bo Jackson and hockey pads, Bo Jackson and all that. But he was a, a freak of nature at a physical level. But he tore up his hip. I, was, I remember watching that game when the Raiders were playing and he, and he dislocated his hip I mean I remember watching that play um, and in all that he ended up having to have a hip replacement and he trained himself for two years back into coming back to baseball it was never the same but they, they were shown in this documentary Bo Jackson training on an artificial hip to get back into shape and it was just like I was exhausted <laughs> it was like I was like sitting there with my legs up, you know, watching this thing, just exhausted, like, uh, this is what Paul's talking about. He's saying, man, get up underneath it and accept responsibility, and I just am more and more coming to the conviction that if there's one thing that frustrates me about American culture right now, I say that a lot, by the way, I'm the most happy American guy there's ever been in the history of the world. I love everything about um, the nice, fresh paved roads on, Brooks, on Brookswood, you know, that Les Schwab tires runs around and changes my tires while I can just sit. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I love everything about freedom. And, and so when I say, um, Frustrating about American culture. I'm I'm always just saying, look, if we just zeroed in on, on something that's problematic, let's discuss that, right? I'm, I hope nobody ever hears me, um, in in all all-or-nothing categories. But here's something that's very challenging right now that wasn't a part of my grandfather. My grandfather. Um, I I didn't know my grandfather on my dad's side that well, but he had he was an immigrant, and he had three jobs. And his wife had MS. And um, all I know is this picture of that guy handled his business. And my grandfather on my mom's side I knew really well. And when they said the greatest generation, like, they meant him, Howie, right? He made molds for 40 years, and he did everything. Um, His pastor once told a story. He was on the elder board at his church. And he once told a story that they needed $20,000, and they were talking all about where they were going to get $20,000 and my grandpa, who didn't have a lot of money, finally just said, Listen, this is ridiculous. Um, we're not saying the obvious. And they all kind of look at him and he's like, 2,000, 2,000, 2,000, 2,000, know? 2,000, um, 2,000. I mean, he just was in. You know? um, he was a godly guy, right? Um, but they accepted responsibility. And I keep looking at my kids and I'm like, If there's anything I want my kids to learn, it's acceptance of responsibility. That when you challenge them on something, it's not the first thing is an excuse. Or the reason why you didn't do it. Or the reason why you don't have to ultimately be responsible. There's something that got, got stamped into my, my mind so much when uh, Ronald Reagan said that famous line, like, it happened on my watch. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the leader of the country, right? It's ultimately my responsibility. It, you know, it happened on my watch. I accept responsibility. You know, there's, there's something about acceptance of responsibility that we have to relearn again. That we say, sorry, you know what? You're right, I could have done better. You know what? You're right. I, um, it's, it's on me. Not on that person or the situation or the circumstances. And this really matters. Um, because there's two kinds of people that follow Jesus. There's the ones that were in the crowd. And then there's the ones that were on his team. You know what I mean? And there was such a huge difference between the two, the ones that followed in the crowd and the ones on the team. When you follow in the crowd, you can have your doubts, and you know what? You can always come up with another question, always. Well, what about this, Jesus? What about that? Well, when this finally changes, then I might change. I might change. I mean, there's always something else that you can come up with, yet still kind of hang out on the edges. But when you are are on the team and you're following Christ, there's always another step you can take in faith, right? Doubts beget doubts, and faith begets faith. Do you understand that? When we accept responsibility for our own faith, then we're saying, you know what, there's always going to be doubts, but I'm choosing not to lean into that or listen to that or, or, or camp there, or use that as an excuse. I, I'm seeking that I might find. I'm asking that it might be answered to me. I'm following so that I might enjoy and know and understand the fellowship that comes from being with the Lord and intimate with the Lord. And when you look for faith, you're always going to find an excuse to take another step of faith. And so doubt begets doubt, and faith begets faith, but we've got to understand that ultimately we've got to take responsibility there's going to always be excuses. There's going to always be reasons why it's not fair, but there's always an opportunity to put those aside and say, those don't matter. What really matters is that there is an invitation waiting for me to take a step of faith, and that God will meet me there and honor me there and bless me there. And I just feel like in the Christian life right now, we have this epidemic of people who have learned whether it's cultural or not, learned to just always excuse themselves. Always excuse themselves. Don't run like someone running aimlessly. Are you running aimlessly? You're responsible for the state in some sense of your own maturity. It's something that you get to be a part of. I want to just quickly hit this last one that kind of falls from it, but it's invest yourself. Accept responsibility and then invest yourself. And maybe I'll just boil this one down to talk about the church. Because um, I think the church is a great litmus test for where we're at with a lot of these things. Hebrews ten twenty four says this, let us not consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us consider how we may, may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Verse 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. And if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, there's this warning. No sacrifices left for sins. It's kind of this stark juxtaposition. This verse has always kind of been used, as I've been a Christian, to say, you need to go to church on Sundays. Don't stop meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, right? Which is both true and not true. And since we are really smart um, people, we, we see the untruth part in it. Like, listen, in the first century, in the Hebrews, in the, uh, whoever is writing the Hebrews, they didn't have high schools or $50 million church complexes, you know, with the flat screen TVs. And they didn't have, I mean, church didn't look like it did today. So this verse didn't mean I was supposed to go sit in that church and, and uh, meet together with people. It's so much broader than that, right? You, you see what I'm saying? So when you say, like, this verse means go to church on Sunday, people are like, yeah, I feel like you're manipulating me. Do you get that? Anybody? Um, And so we excuse ourselves from going to church. That's not really what that verse means. No one can tell me I have to go to church every Sunday. It's not like God's going to really take attendance if I'm going to church every Sunday. So then where are you meeting together with the believers? Well, I've got Christian friends. I've got Christian friends. Well, does that really ever end up being the picture of what the church gathered is supposed to be, where the gifts of teaching and exhortation and, and worship and all these things are happening? Does that really? Or do you get together and talk football? Or do you go shopping together? You see what I'm saying? Like The replacement is not the thing that exists, that's supposed to hold the things. And so we make an excuse not to do church, and we say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll have Christian fellowship, but then Christian fellowship, if we don't formalize it or intentionalize it, never really has the things that this thing... Ha- you see what I'm saying? And so when, when I read this verse, I'm like, yeah, absolutely, don't stop meeting together. My, my wife and I have started grieving friends we know that have stopped going to church, and it happens so subtly and, and then their lives begin to veer and we watch it happen and we grieve it because we're like, as dumb as this sounds, if they were sitting in church every Sunday, somehow it wouldn't happen that way. Somehow, little by little, they would get those corrections or they would remember, oh, that's right. Or they would sense the presence of the Lord. Somehow it wouldn't happen. You know, the best sermon that gets preached every Sunday is, is the one that has nothing to do with the sermon getting preached every Sunday. Raise your hand if the most meaningful thing that you've heard in a sermon at Antioch was the thought you had after you heard me or somebody say something that had nothing to do with the thought you had after you heard us say something. Anybody? There's something dynamic about the preaching of the word or talking about truth or sitting and reflecting where God can speak into it. And what you need to hear usually comes not because we're doing some mechanical kind of exercise, but there's something unbelievable about sitting here and being in that context that we have to realize is important. And so we have to invest ourselves. Church matters, a couple quick things. Your kids are gonna hate church until they know that church is what they do and there is no option. If you have kids that that whine about church every week, it's because they think that whining serves a purpose. I'm serious. We stop whining about things or complaining about things when we finally give up. The best thing we ever did with our kids is we finally made them realize we go to church. That's what we do. And it doesn't matter whether we like it or don't like it, whether that teacher was whatever or not whatever, whatever. Whether it was all about us or not, and we start, our kids now are at the age where they now serve in other kids' ministries. And it's it's in some ways an even greater opportunity for us. But when they stopped thinking that whining had a purpose, they stopped whining. The same is true, I think, for adults when we begin to realize um, church is a discipline. We invest into it. We've said before that everyone should have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. I want to add to that though it's not because doing is more important than being you should have a ministry in the church it's not because we're so amped up about your doing that's not the point here's the point it's not because doing is more important than being but because not being engaged in doing has such a drastic effect on your being does that make sense Everyone should have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world, not because I'm so focused on what you do, but if you're not doing anything, if you're not investing yourself, it has such a drastic effect on your being. The parable of the, the, the 10 minas is so illustrative of this. That It's like, man, I got something, but I don't know, it's all really big and God seems really scary. Let me just go hide it. And at least um, that's taken care of and then I'm gonna go do who knows what. Well, there's a guy... Working his tail off to, to double up his 10. And a guy working his tail off to double up his 5. And then the, the master comes back and these stewards say what's going on. And the one that squandered it was like, hey man, it's not my fault. I, I was really careful to make sure that I didn't mess anything up. I didn't lose anything. And, and the, the master was like, I'm so unexcited about you. I mean, it was worse than that. He ended up like having the guy taken out and, and literally like beat. I'm so unexcited about you. I care about my kingdom. I care about my people. I care about my stuff. And these people that cared about my stuff and my kingdom and my people too, they cared about it so much that they worked tirelessly. I am really excited about those people. Like it was like working with them or hearing about what they were doing really excites me. Like that gets me jacked up and you are really unexciting to me. You don't even like, like the things I like. You're not even willing to lift a finger. Church is so casual or, or just doing all the taking and never doing or serving. Like, You know what? Just give me your stuff. So I can give it to this guy who I'm excited about. And to him who has more, more will be given. You want to experience more of God? Do more stuff. I don't mean that in the radical guilt-centered way. I mean that in the serve Jesus kind of way, where you're right on his hip doing what he's doing, following where he's falling, accepting responsibility, investing yourself into kingdom things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. And you want to see more of God? Focus on God. Accept responsibility. Invest yourself. Um, it's been said that church is like a football game on Sunday mornings. You know, that there's um, 60,000 people in the stands desperately in uh, So there's 22 people on the field desperately in need of rest, and 60,000 people in the stands desperately in need of exercise. You know, Um, that we get it all, all kind of off. Um, And I, I'm really jazzed about where Antioch's at right now. I don't know if you guys were at the the worship night. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed again about church. I was a church planner. I was obsessed. I had this dream of making church cool. So that the pride of Christ would actually be higher up in our priorities or our values. And health issues and a whole bunch of other things for the last couple of years have been really difficult for me. And about two months ago, it's like independent of each other, Tamara and I came to this point where we're like, we're just absolutely obsessed again with church. We are. like we're, We talk about it and we go on date nights and dream about Antioch. And about ministry, about what we can do in band, and about the people that we can run with that also share this passion, and others that we might be able to call into in this passion. And I'm absolutely, radically obsessed again with this idea of the local church. And I look at the fall and what's coming up, and I'm like, you guys have no idea what's going to happen at this church um, come September and October. It's, it's just, you should you should be excited. I'll tell you more. Like You can find me afterwards. We don't have time. But it's... There's an invitation there. Um, I would love to run alongside some people that are willing to care about the goofy things of God more than the, the whatever temporal fashions are of our day and age. And if that's you, if God's given you abilities or leadership gifts or whatever, like let's figure out a way to collaborate and re-envision what that could look like because I want to invest I want to invest myself. I don't want to spend my life on stuff that's just going to burn. I want to invest myself in the stuff that's